the Anesthesia Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this video interview um, with two authors of a new paper that's been published today, um, which is a multidisciplinary statement on the timing of elective surgery and risk assessment after SARS-CoV-2 infection. And it's now been updated and we're in the third version. Uh, and the hope is that this new guidance will um, be really helpful to policymakers, administrators, staff, clinicians, but most importantly, uh, patients. And what we want to do is try and make sure um, that we get the key messages of the paper over to you today. So it's really great to have um, the authors with us um, on the day publication to explain why this is important uh, and what we all need to know. Um, so good morning, Romani, and good morning, Kareem. Um, perhaps, uh, Romani, if you could just tell us um, who you are and, and what role you had in the in the guideline. Thanks, um, Mike. So I'm Romani Moonasinger. I'm a professor of perioperative medicine and a consultant at UCL and UCL hospitals. Um, I have a role with NHS England as the National Clinical Director for Perioperative and Critical Care. And um, my involvement in the guidelines was supportive. I helped to um, write them with Kareem leading um, and provide, I think, a bit of perspective from the NHS England uh, point of view as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Mike, and thanks, Ramani. Uh, yeah, I'm Kareem Abugdadli. I'm a consultant anaesthetist um, uh, in London, uh, uh, editor for Anesthesia, um, and have been the chair for the past, the previous two iterations of the set of guidelines of timing of surgery um, uh, following SARS-CoV-2 infection. So uh, I chaired this set of guidelines as well, working with some outstanding people uh, that I'm very blessed to have been able to work with, including Ramani. Um, and that's my role here. And it must have really um, been a monumental effort to, you know, have three iterations of the guideline now and to achieve consensus amongst what is quite a, a lot of individuals, but also organisations as well. Um, so I'm sure a lot of work has, has been going on behind the scenes to uh, produce this really uh, nice guidelines that will be useful for everyone. Um, so firstly, um, it's quite unusual to have uh, three iterations so close together. Um, so why particularly do we need a third guideline and, and what's changed from the previous versions? Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, you're right. Most guidelines take anywhere between five and 10 years to, to update and write and publish. Um, uh, but, you know, COVID was obviously very different and things changed very rapidly. And, uh, 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 you know, the geography of of what we're doing in peroperative care and uh, and all and all clinical care really has has uh, uh, pivoted quite a lot in the last three years. Um, so things have changed, obviously, and we all know things have changed. We've moved on in the pandemic. Uh, we're pretty much in an endemic phase of the pandemic. Uh, the WHO have effectively said that there is no longer a global emergency due to COVID nineteen, and there's been lots of things that have changed in the perioperative space with regards to SARS-CoV-2 infection, COVID-19 uh, and timing of surgery. Firstly, we know that um, the variants that are currently uh, uh, widespread, Omicron and the various sublineages are a little bit uh, um, uh, less severe in terms of severity of infection um, uh, and outcomes do seem to be a little bit more favorable compared with previous iterations. So now we have the new variants and the the the, um, uh, uh, the 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 slightly less virulent forms of of COVID nineteen. We also have had widespread vaccinations, so you know the populations have been vaccinated, boosted, triple boosted, quadruple boosted. On top of that, we've also got a population who now 
have a little bit more of a robust immunity to uh, to SARS-CoV-2, uh, which we didn't really have very much immunity in the first wave and not as much in the second wave. Um, uh, and of course, competing with all of that is we've also got this massive backlog that we're trying to tackle. And what we need to do is we need to try and mitigate as many barriers to surgery as possible. So there's been lots of calls for us to reassess the data, reassess the evidence, uh, and uh, see if there's something that can be, uh, uh, that recommendations that can be kept more contemporary. So we have been forced to update the guidelines quite quickly um, with whatever data that we can use. And we had kind of held back and waited for, for slightly more robust data to be published before we updated the guidelines. In fact, people wanted us to update these guidelines end of last year, only six to eight months after the, the second iteration of the guidelines were uh, uh, were published. So I think that um, I think that there's a number of reasons why the guidelines needed to be updated in this sort of time frame. And I'm hoping, hoping that we don't need to do as many updates in the future. And maybe, maybe <laughs> this could be the last one. Who, who knows? <laughs> so um, anything to add to that, Romani? No, only to say that, um, you know, like so many other things with uh, which are related to COVID, um, while it's been the most horrific experience at a personal, professional and population level, there are some good things that have come out of it. And one of them is um, the way that communities have come together to produce guidance in a really rapid way, to review evidence as it comes out in a really rapid way. Yeah. And the third publication of this particular set of guidelines really... Um, uh, makes that point. Yeah, I agree with that. I can't remember ever seeing um, successive guidelines on one topic coming out so quickly and being so uh, responsive to what's going on um, in the hospitals and, and and the world out there. It's um, it, it's it is a real success story. I I think from the pandemic. Um, so going into the recommendations, what what are the what's the main message from the guideline? Um, because uh, we want people to go and read the paper, um, but we want to know, you know, as, as the authors of that paper, can can you distill um, a, a key take-home message for clinicians and for patients and for anyone else that's interested? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, people have taken away from the last two guidelines two words seven weeks um uh, and uh, and i don't want that to be the message from this guideline as well just two words really um the last set of guidelines we actually changed the title to include the words risk assessment so we said timing and risk assessment because that was really the emphasis last time we spent a lot of time discussing risk assessment there but for this set of guidelines it is timing and it is risk assessment and the, the key recommendations that we are going to be making that if a patient is uh, positive for SARS-CoV-2 within two weeks of planned surgery, uh, then, then you should ideally defer unless there's clear clinical priority and a clear clinical indication for proceeding. Between two and seven weeks, then you need to do a risk assessment. So patients who are low risk, having low risk surgery, which really when we looked at the data and when you look at the numbers, that is actually the majority of patients in the NHS and the majority of patients actually waiting for surgery um, uh, between two and seven weeks. It's probably safe to proceed if you've done that risk assessment. And if they're not in that cohort of patients that are low risk patients having low risk surgery, uh, then you need to think about it and do a, a formal risk assessment uh, and determine when you proceed with the surgery, whether you delay until seven weeks, whether you delay until four weeks, 
we have a little bit of discussion in the manuscript really of of how you can think about think about doing that that risk assessment and then anyone uh who's positive more than seven weeks before surgery unless they've got ongoing symptoms or they're really really high risk which is very very rare uh then you don't need to worry about um uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection and you can proceed uh, uh with surgery so defer for the first two weeks risk assess two to seven weeks and proceed beyond seven weeks but the emphasis as well is in that two to seven week window is risk assessment I think that's that's pretty clear um and um there was some quite interesting work I know you were in, involved with uh, Romani in that's published in quite recently uh, through the use of open safely um and one of the messages that struck me from that paper um was that that perhaps showed that some of the previous guidance might have been misinterpreted in terms of how Kareem you know stated seven weeks and uh, I think was it right that that paper showed that clinicians seem to be adhering um to that perhaps rigid rule uh, quite um rigorously um and that perhaps people weren't being risk assessed as as is now being um recommended again in this guidelines that thanks mike so yeah i mean i think that there were two key purposes to the open safety paper the first was to look at the adherence of the NHS in England to the first set of guidelines in particular um, about which which really did clearly state don't operate within seven weeks unless there's a really good reason to do so because that was those were issued in the height of the pandemic before vaccination you know based on um, data from one big study that was international um, and the paper found that there was um, generally uh, very good adherence to that. What it also found is that there wasn't a massive sea change when the second set of guidelines came out. And that paper didn't look for very long after the second um, set of guidelines came out, but there didn't appear to be a sort of step change in people's approach. And I think that then is supported by our clinical experience, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And we talked about this when we um, discussed the open, paper, open safety paper in, in one of these podcasts that... Um, People are very good at um, taking an individualised approach to the to the sort of well. People were better at taking an individualised approach to the higher risk patient. For example, the patient that everyone felt needed to proceed because they either had an emergency condition, obviously, or they had an urgent condition like pressing cancer surgery, pressing vascular surgery, whatever. People people kind of got that and could take that risk based approach to what to do there. But our clinical experience tells us that 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 they're not so good at looking at the lower risk patients and taking that proportionate approach. Um, so, um, and and then considering not just the because it's easy to say, okay, the patients had COVID, but then the last few weeks let's not operate, hmm. without considering the wider impact that it has on that patient. Um, so, uh, what this new guideline does is really re-emphasise what the second one had said but provide additional data to support that assertion of risk assessment and sort of flip the recommendation on its head to say, okay, we, we now consider it to be reasonable to proceed after two weeks uh, of an acute infection, uh, unless there's good reason to not proceed on the basis of an individualized risk assessment. And that's just sort of flipping it a little bit, but um, we hope that will have the desired effect in terms of 
encouraging people to take a proportionate approach to risk assessment, particularly as Karima said, that the majority, 80% plus of patients having surgery in the NHS are having low risk surgery done as an outpatient, where um, the risk of an acute um, COVID infection is, particularly if they've been vaccinated, uh, is likely to be very low. And can you remind us what the sort two scoring system is and um, and how that fits into some of the aims of the of the guidelines? Thanks, Mike. So, um, so the sort two, sort one um, was uh, a very simple risk assessment tool that was derived using really generalizable data from an NCPOD study done in 2012, and um, uh, it. Uh, consists of six variables, the type of surgery, magnitude and urgency, uh, the patient's age, uh, the, uh, the the part of the body that the operation is happening on, um, whether the patient has had cancer within the last five years. Um, and um, the, oh, and their ASA grade as a sort of um, uh, measure of their general functional capacity and physical status. And um, you pop those variables into an online or app-based calculator and it gives you a 30-day mortality prediction. And the sort version two is the same variables, but has the additional opportunity to add clinician judgment into it. So you complete your own, based on your own clinical judgment, what you think the patient's mortality risk is within um, various categories. And um, the uh, COVID guideline we've just published has um, included the sort version two as an example of a an objective risk calculator that can be used to support this individualized decision making. Um, and the reason that um, we were able to do that is because of a recent systematic review that found, uh, that has also been published in Anesthesia, that found the um, sort to be the best, valid, to have the best combination of uh, objective validation and clinical usability is easy to use at the bedside um, out of all of the different risk assessment tools that are available for preoperative risk prediction. So using a tool like this is important for two reasons. So first of all, we know it, it works. And secondly, it's a mechanism for communicating between different people, particularly different healthcare professionals, because um, uh, the uh, less experienced early career doctor or nurse coming to you with an assessment of a patient's risk will be supported by having a valid, uh, an assessment using an objective validated tool. Um, and that will enable uh, the more senior clinicians who with the patient are making the decisions to do so robustly. So that's the reason for using a tool like this. Mm. And I guess it feeds into what Karim mentioned earlier, which is about population risk and um, from the surgical backlogs um, and the need to balance that against individual patients, uh, as well as the consequences for those patients of delaying surgery as well. Um, so I guess I guess it provides what we always want which is some way of quantifying those factors for and against um surgery um and um hopefully that's one of the really important things that will clinicians can take away that there is a score that they're able to use that will um assist them to making these very difficult can be very difficult decisions yeah um, absolutely and does um is is that a way of looking at types of surgery as well because obviously some operations are more urgent than others you've got someone that's having cardiac surgery or someone that's having cancer surgery um presumably that changes um things and that can be factored in yeah so i mean i think that's where the clinical judgment really comes into 
um, play as well, though, because the, the sort is a 30-day mortality prediction model. It's not anything other than that. Um, and so uh, the decision-making about, you know, in the context of recent COVID infection, or in indeed in any context, um, deciding whether to proceed or not on the day, deciding uh, what the right pathway is for a patient and the urgency of doing the operation in the context of big surgical backlogs. Um, the biggest thing that we've got to consider is the, um, the, the impact of not proceeding quickly on that individual patient. And uh, it's kind of obvious with cancer, or at least with the big cancers that progress, have the risk of progressing quickly, like GI cancers, for example. Um, it may not be so obvious with, for example, some patients having uh, orthopedic surgery where the risk is not to life, but it is to quality of life. And it is potentially to all sorts of other tangential things like patients' ability to work, uh, their mental health and all those sorts of things. So at the moment, I don't, I'm not aware of any objective tools that will help us decision make about timing of surgery uh, given all of those wider contexts so that's why we need uh, human beings with experience to talk to patients and, and then help balance the risks and benefits uh, and then make a decision collaboratively and it's not just about anesthetists of course it's about anesthetists and surgeons and <laughs> physicians oncologists geriatricians whatever uh, given the context of the patient and the surgery yeah um and i guess it's uh it's not something that ai is going to be able to help us with anytime soon either or anything like that we need real experienced clinicians and and people involved with making decisions about people um yeah because the data aren't there i don't think to feed into the mo ai models and that's a yeah. that's a problem one day it'll happen day. but yeah um, so you've given, you've given us eight recommendations um, and they're all there available on the infographic that's been tweeted as well today and in the paper and, and we, we would hope that uh, readers would go beyond those recommendations and have a look at some of the really important points that, that are uh, in the paper as well but um, are you able to pick one recommendation that you think is the most important um, or is that too much of a is that too difficult? Who's your favourite child? I mean that's a very difficult question <laughs> isn't it? Um, uh, I think, I, I mean, I think this conversation that Ramani, myself and you have had, we've, we've focused on risk assessment a lot. We've talked about risk assessment, risk assessment, risk assessment. And that's because I think the emphasis isn't on timing is on risk assessment again. So if I were to choose any of the eight recommendations, I was just having a look here. Uh, I think that it would probably be, uh, the recommendation that do risk assessment between two and seven weeks. Uh, and I think that's the key. And, and and the risk assessment is both baseline risk, but also additional risk factors. And we talk about in the previous iteration, the difference between absolute and relative risk. Mm. Uh, and that's a, the same concept that we've kind of uh, uh, very subtly emphasized in this manuscript, because we don't want to teach people statistics. And I don't think it should be very complicated, but simply the concept of uh, looking at individual patients, absolute risk, uh, increase um, uh, between two and seven weeks. I think that's the key recommendation to my mind. That's my favourite child, if I had to choose one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, um, I'd um, concur with that, Kareem. And, I, I, and I'd also say that we know, just to give a quick plug for the PQIT report that will be published quite soon, we know that we actually we don't 
do the risk assessment as often as we should. So around a third of patients in the most recent PQIP cohort didn't have a risk assessment documented in their, an individualised risk assessment documented in their notes. And, and that only looks at really, really big operations that require a two, three day length like of stay minimum and, and all the rest of it. So if we're not doing it for those patients, we're pretty certainly not doing it for the lower risk patients. And, and um, we're kind of obliged to, because of guidelines like this, we're also legally obliged to. So yeah, I'd agree on the basis of this guideline, but also the wider context, the risk assessment's absolutely critical. Can I just uh, very, very quickly add, uh, um, uh, you know, we uh, the, the idea of risk assessment and the idea of bringing the timing down between seven to two to seven weeks, um, uh, I think has been really, really is going to be really important. I hope it's going to be really important to benefit patients uh, nationally, but also what what's happened in the last couple of weeks is the um, the ASA, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, and the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation (APSF) have had an opportunity to review these guidelines themselves, and they they are they're fully supportive of them as well. Uh, and in fact, they're going to be um, uh, supporting the recommendations that we're making herein. So I'm hoping that these guidelines will support safe surgery for patients beyond just the UK, actually. Um, uh, and the concept of risk assessment is something that people do uh, everywhere, really, um, uh, in that two to seven week period, and probably for, for all your patients. We often do it, but we don't necessarily document it. We often do it you know, without really explicitly thinking about it with our patients. Um, uh, but this is an opportunity really for us to really to really bring it, bring it forward and really think about the, that risk assessment a little bit more explicitly. Well, I think that has been really useful uh, for me. Uh, I hope it's been really useful for um, everyone who's watched as well. Um, I would, um, as always, really encourage you to read the full paper, uh, which is free to access. Um, so do please go beyond this video and the podcast and the infographic and recommendations and do um, have a read of the paper. It shouldn't, it's quite a nice, concise paper um, because a lot of this has obviously been talked about before and this is an update. Um, so you know, 20 minutes, half an hour reading the papers, well, going to be well worth it because I think these are really useful clinical guidelines that, that we can all incorporate uh, into the work that we do every day. Um, and we can help our patients and we can make the best decisions for our patients and um, by incorporating these guidelines into our work. Um, so thank you very much, um, Ramani. Thank you very much, Kareem. Uh, and um, we will be watching as the discussions happen on Twitter now. Um, so please do tweet us, um, please do send us letters, uh, and please do um, let us know what you think as well. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks, Ramini. The Anesthesia Podcast.